Good evening. If you would turn your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Sang some songs about the Lord being a refuge tonight, being a shelter in the time of storm. The believers in Thessalonica, almost from the time that they were Christians, were in a storm. And they had to have Christ as the refuge. That's certainly a song they, they would have sung and treasured. It would have been written so many years ago. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's begin actually by reading the whole chapter. Our text for this evening will actually just be the final two verses, 16 and 17. But starting in verse 1, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, God's word says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. When a child is afraid of the dark, when they're young, maybe this was you uh, when you were a kid, one of the most comforting things to you is to learn that your dad or your mom can protect you. It helps to have mom or dad around. Maybe that's how kids can weasel their way into uh, sleeping a night in their parents' bed because they just want to be close. They want their parents' assurance and tenderness. Uh, it can be this way in a different uh, sense with a teenager who maybe wants to go to some event with his friends, but his parents tell him no. It can be easy to be angry until maybe, uh, perhaps gets a little wiser and realizes that his parents know better and that his parents are doing something in his best interest. Even as an adult, we can, maybe if we're going to start something new, maybe you're nervous because you don't have any experience or something like this. And uh, you have someone telling you, okay, just let me know if you need some help. And you're nervous and you're, you're 
really pensive about getting started and because you don't really believe that this person will help you if you call for help. You don't want to be needy or something like that. We often feel as though our security or our best interests are entirely up to us. But if someone is near, that can help us. If someone is willing to help us, and we're really convinced of it, that will help us through something that's fearful, something that's disappointing, something that's challenging to us. Well, here, these believers, as young, uh, really uh, still moldable believers, inexperienced believers, they have faced a major difficulty in facing persecution right off the bat. And that's why Paul is writing to them the second time to encourage them to persevere under persecution because they have, and he's rejoicing about this, and he's already written one letter. But he's also addressing this second issue of a, a false teaching that has arisen, some error that has come where someone has come in, as we read, and said, the day of the Lord has come. You missed it. It's upon you. You are in the time of God's wrath. And they're uncertain about their salvation, about things that are happening around them. Is this God's judgment on the earth? They're young, they're inexperienced. Paul is not with them. He's trying to stabilize them. And you see how we've covered this in previous weeks. He refers to this specific timeline of things that have to come. It hasn't started yet. This and this and this and this have to happen. This is demonstrating God's judgment, his absolute power over men and nations. He's going to make sure that he protects you that he judges all those who won't believe. You don't need to fear because you have believed. We have this confidence, verse 13. God has chosen you for salvation. God hasn't destined you for wrath. You don't need to fear this. Paul is calming them. He's comforting them. But here at the end, as he's reminded them to, really, he's putting it in their mind to look back to what he taught them Stand firm, hold to to traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. He's really pointing back to, there seems there's some self-consciousness about divine revelation. This is from God. This is true. You can stake your life on it. Paul's really dealing with this whole error by pointing them to the truth of their standing with the Lord, the truth of the gospel, that Christ has died, he's risen, he's coming again. And that's what's to stabilize them. But like that child or that teenager, or even like us, it, it really can be overwhelming to feel as though our security in the truth depends entirely on us. And now here at the end, as Paul expresses this wish, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, it's kind of a benediction, a prayer at the end, may God do this to you. This is his wish for them. He's reminding them, he's putting their confidence, not just in them and their ability to hold on to the truth, but God and his ability to hold on to them. They're in God's hands. This is the blessed hope of the gospel for the Christians. The stability of the gospel is that our security ultimately rests in God. The security, excuse me, the stability of the gospel is that your security ultimately rests in God. I think that's the substance of what Paul is saying as he's praying this, may God keep you. But he's really putting it in their mind. This is the one who is going to keep you. And you can pray towards this end. I believe what Paul is doing in these in this prayer is he's highlighting God's disposition toward his own. I think he unfolds this in basically three ways. God's disposition towards you 
when you're unsteady, when you're fearful? What is it? How is God disposed towards you when you're rattled by some error or uncertain about where you stand with God or your ability to hang on to the truth? And I think you could summarize it under these three headings. God is invested and interested in his people. He's gracious toward his people and he helps his people. So first notice God's, what I'm calling God's coordination toward his own, the coordination of God toward his own. And why do I say that? Maybe that's a strange way to put it. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, a definite emphasis on the son, the savior, and God, our father. And then he identifies him. Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. God himself, Christ himself, and God the Father together doing this. It's very clear by what he says that he means both of them. They are working together. There is first personal investment in these believers of, from both the Father and the Son. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. It's not just one or the other, it's both. He's been referencing the son's coming into the world to judge his own and rescue his own. But this really is, now he's really focusing not just on those unbelievers, but the Savior's heart towards you, believer. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself bless you in this way. So understand Jesus' heart towards you. And God, his heart towards you. I think If you think of Jesus as the head of the church, the the husband of the bride, this is how Jesus treats his own with great tenderness and affection and concern and self-sacrifice. If you look at Ephesians chapter five, as Paul is giving instructions to husbands and wives, wives submit to your own husbands as the church does to Christ. Husbands love your wives as Christ does the church and gave himself for her. He treats the, the bride with tenderness. There's personal investment on the part of Jesus toward his own. And Paul really kind of puts Jesus at the headline of his wish here. But it's also kind of a little interesting that he doesn't make a complete distinction between the will of the Father and the Son. They're both named, and then they're both acting as one. He uses singular verbs here. And it's interesting that he puts Father and Son right next to each other, Jesus even before the Father. Paul has no hesitation placing Jesus alongside God the Father, because Jesus is God. Paul knows this. He calls him Lord. He is the Lord of the church. He is master. He's the savior of the church, and we ought to submit to him and obey him. He's coming as a conquering king to judge those who don't believe. He's coming as God, the rightful judge of the universe. There's no complete distinction here between father and son. There's coordination between them. And he addresses them tenderly. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our father. This is Paul in connection with the believers in the church, really with all believers. If you are a Christian, you know Jesus as your Lord, Messiah, and God your Father. It really is the joy of the godly to know the true God as their God, isn't it? The psalmist writes in Psalm 20, some boast in chariots and some in, host, in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. 
This is the hope of the Christian. That's Paul's point in this prayer is to set their hope there, even as he's reminding them that God has his eyes on you. Jesus Christ himself takes a personal interest in this and God the Father. So know your Lord, know your Father, claim him, identify with him as your own, fellowship with him. Pastor was referring this evening to to God's care for his own. John chapter 10, Jesus says in John chapter 10, you're describing the security that a believer has. I know my own and my own know me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. God is interested in you, Christian. I think that's part of what Paul is saying in this prayer. But God is also interested in you knowing him. Not just in him knowing you, but you fellowshipping with him. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That really is the prize of a Christian. But if God is not your God, if Jesus is not your Savior, you don't have any of this confidence. The confidence of eternal security. But you can. You can. God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the good news of the gospel is that God will save anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Christ. He's a forgiving God. He offers cleansing from sin and eternal life through Jesus Christ who died in your place and mine so that you can be right with God. This is the first insight I think we can gain from Paul's short prayer here at the end. He's kind of calming these believers. He's drawing their attention to God's disposition towards them. When they've, they've been kind of rocked, their boat's been rocked by some lies. He's still invested in you. He's attentive towards you. He never changes. It steadies us to remember that our security rests ultimately in him. But the second way, I think it becomes more evident how Paul is unfolding God's disposition toward his own is how he describes God and the Son. He, he doesn't distinguish them completely he's describing them as one and the same and how does he describe that may our lord jesus christ himself and god our father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace you also see here god's grace toward his own god is doing acting toward his own in grace what is god's grace that paul is putting in their minds what can they know well they know god's grace by his loving atonement God has loved us, or Christ has loved us. He's really identifying Christ, but he's focused on, it's clear from how he, even from our translation, he's fixed on a point in the past. What point in the past is Christ's love most evident, or God's love most evident? Well, elsewhere, Paul writes of God's love in adopting, in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons, is what Paul says. This is God before time in the plan of redemption, choosing some in love by grace. But Paul also says in in, uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, speaking about God's love, Christ's love for him dying on a cross. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So you certainly see God's love in redemption to choose even one sinner. You definitely see that love acted out by Christ giving himself up for sinners. This is the love of redemption. God and Christ have both, as one, loved us, brothers and sisters. So when you think about the gospel, don't Just think about God as a judge who maybe has to make a grudging decision to forgive someone. That's not God's heart. God loves sinners. You see this in Jesus. He's called the friend of sinners. He goes to them. He feels compassion towards them. He pities them. He serves them. He pursues them. This is the love of God towards sinners like you and me. But then also believe in Jesus because that is a love not to be shunned. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is God's grace toward his people, that he would love them and make atonement for them and apply it to their account. But they also know, and we know God's grace by what I'm saying is eternal security. Paul says, God has loved us and given us eternal Comfort. Not only does God love, but also God gives. And he gives two things, comfort and hope. But first, comfort. This is comfort everlasting, consolation that never ends. Solace that you have now, presently, as you sit here, and that will never diminish. And what is that comfort? It's the comfort of being a child of God. Secure forever. When God forgives you and gives you eternal life through the finished work of Christ, he'll never take that back. He's never going to ask for it back. Have you ever gotten a check? It's like, wow, I didn't expect that. I'm going to go cash it before somebody goes and tries to find it and take it out of my bank account. God will never take this away. There's a little book that we have on our bookshelf called How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? I know many of you have read it. Kind of a central premise in that book by Don Whitney, talking about assurance of salvation. He states it this way, the assurance of salvation rests primarily on these three things, on the character of God, the work of Jesus Christ, and the truth of God's promises. The character of God, the work of Jesus Christ, and the truth of God's promises. How can you have assurance? There there are other evidences that you can point to, certainly, but it's really founded on this, that God is holy, that he had to make a way for sinners to be right with himself, that God is just, that he had to punish all sin, that he is true, that he will never go back on his word. The work of Christ, it's not half done, still waiting to be finished. It's complete and eternal once for all. If you're going to doubt anything, don't doubt that. And the promises of God. God says, whoever believes will be saved. He says that he is a forgiving God. If you're going to have doubts, don't let it be about the promise of God in salvation. That really is the foundation of assurance of salvation. 
J.W. Alexander, a, a 19th century pastor, said this. This is a quote from that book. Those who have had the most abiding assurance of God's love are those who have been most in meditation on the written assurances of that love. And you see here how love and comfort come together. When you are convinced by what God says about how he loves you and the truthfulness of the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ, that it is founded and, and secured entirely by him, you will have great comfort when you meditate on God's written word and the assurances of that love. So do you accept the comfort that God gives or, or do you try to demand something more? This really requires a simplicity of faith, taking God at his word, not being skeptical of him, thinking that he's going to deceive you, but trusting him. It really is just simply not true that a person can lose, lose their salvation. It's called eternal comfort. Of course, your, your awareness of your salvation, your perception of it, your feelings about your salvation might change as your obedience to the Lord waxes or wanes. Or if you harbor sin in your heart, of course, you, you may not feel like you're saved. And if you don't turn from sin, it very well may be true that you're not. But if this is eternal comfort, how can call Paul how can Paul call it that if it's something that you can lose? This is consolation that never ends. And God wants you to have this. This is his grace towards you. We know God's grace by the cross, by eternal security, eternal comfort, as Paul says. And God gives good hope by his grace too. We know God's grace by really Christ's resurrection. The topic has been Christ's second coming. We want to talk to you, brethren, about our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our gathering together with him. That's the reason for their hope, that they will go to be with God when Christ returns for them. But the whole you know, he's not coming again if he's not alive. He's coming again because he is alive. He defeated death. Death had no more power over him. God broke the power of death when he raised Christ from the dead. Have you ever had this possibility in your future? Maybe a job change or uh, some exciting news or something like that coming uh, in the future and someone kind of gives you a hint about that and is kind of getting you riled up. And it's like, oh, you're getting my hopes up. But you're, you're real hesitant to kind of set your emotions on that thing because you can't guarantee it. It's not a, it's not a for sure thing. I don't want to get my hopes up. Uh, just stop talking to me about it. I, I'd just rather not think about it. So I don't want to get carried away. God does give hope about eternal life with him. And he can guarantee it. And he does give you that hope on purpose so that you will set your desires on it because it is certain. This is good hope. It's sure. So we ought to think on the hope that God gives us in his living son coming again. Our problems won't disappear because we have hope, but it is God's gift to you to have confidence about the future. This is all about Christ's disposition 
towards you. Again, realize God does all this by his grace. He doesn't have to do this, but he does because he's gracious and he's giving you a good gift. This is his favor toward us. And it's amazing to think about, isn't it? That God is this good. Familiarity with the truth of the gospel and all its implications for you as a child of God, that is what will stabilize you. When error comes, when something really knocks you unsteady, what? There is a God in heaven, and by his mercy, he loves me. And there are a whole lot of other things that I don't have to worry about. God gives this stability, this comfort at salvation. That's the security of the gospel, you could say, in the past. Paul says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us, that he's... uh, Referring to a definite point in the past, he gave us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. That's something that Paul knows from history, definite things that happened that God has made true for Paul and applied to him. But it's also his assurance about the present and the future. May God, who did that, comfort and strengthen you in the present, your hearts, in every good work and word. If God didn't withhold his son, how is he going to withhold anything good from you? And That's his logic. God showed grace then at salvation, and he does so now. I believe Paul's talking about sanctification. God is three, God, three persons in one God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God our Father, even the Spirit invested in his own. God is gracious toward his own, and God fortifies, lastly, his own. May God, this is the substance of Paul's request, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. This is the the final aspect of God's disposition towards you. God stabilizes his people. He's giving comfort when they're alarmed. How are they alarmed? Paul says in verse 2, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. They have been shaken. They have been disturbed. They're, They're doubtful about things. They're uncertain. They're fearful. Maybe they're changing their behavior because they think something that they've been taught is wrong. Literally, this reads, may God comfort your hearts and strengthen you in every work and good word but may the lord comfort your hearts why pray this because they need it they have been unsettled he knows that these ones like sheep have been alarmed i was reading recently about a shepherd who purchased some sheep and someone came to visit him and their dog got out of the car. And as soon as that whole flock of sheep in the pasture saw the dog, it wasn't a shepherd dog or anything like that. It just rattled them and they started going crazy and they're running around and they don't know what to do. And they start doing dumb things because sheep are dumb, aren't we? Sheep are, but we're a lot more like sheep than we tend to think. And Paul knows this. He's a shepherd. There are things in life that really can unsteady us and make us do things that if we're in our right mind and convinced of the truth, we wouldn't do. We need God's comfort. 
we should set it as our goal to be assured of the truth. That is really how God stabilizes them. That's how Paul stabilizes them. He returns them to thinking about what he had taught them. Paul may be their shepherd in a certain sense, calming the sheep of that church. But if you're God's child, he's your shepherd, isn't he? He wants you to be at rest. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to have the blessing of peace of mind for you. Think of the images of Psalm 23. Of a, It's almost the testimony of a sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything. He leads me beside still waters. He's a good shepherd. He really stakes his reputation as a shepherd on the well-being of his sheep. God wants you to have this. God comforts his own. He stabilizes them. He gives you comfort when you're alarmed. This is what God offers you if you rest in him. But Paul prays also that God would comfort and strengthen them. I think you could understand it this way. God not only stabilizes his people, he matures his people. He helps them grow strong. He doesn't receive a sheep into his pasture, into his fold, and leave them weak and malnourished. No, he wants to see them come to full maturity and full production of what all a sheep should produce. God strengthens his people amid pressure. And when Paul says, may the Lord comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word, some people, you could interpret this as deed and speech, you know, thoughts and actions kind of generally. Some people do interpret it that way. Or it could refer to the work of faith, like what Paul has talked about in chapter one. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. And what did he remind them of in verse 15? Stand firm and hold, uh, chapter two, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. I believe Paul is referring back to not just general actions and thoughts that the Lord would strengthen you in, that he would kind of give you mental toughness and gracious speech, but that the Lord would sanctify you on the word of God, not just any word, but God's word. And that the Lord would strengthen you, not just to do any kind of general work, but the work of faith, Christian work, the work that testifies of faith. And that's how I understand it. God strengthens his people in every good word of his, in every good work of faith for them. And it's inclusive. It's every good work and word, and it's everything profitable. It's good works and words. God matures his people. He gives them spiritual fortitude to withstand spiritual pressure and deceit. And what are we talking about when we talk about maturity? We're talking about being like Jesus. Paul doesn't make that explicit here. I believe that's really the, the, the direction he's driving in. May God make you like his own son. This isn't just for pastors. When you read maybe qualifications for elders and you, you kind of set that up as something beyond what you should do, that's just for this person. Well, really, that's just 
It's just a certain qualification to be like Jesus Christ. We all ought to be striving to be like Jesus Christ, to be mature Christians. God wants all of his people to be mature without exception. We should be aiming at that. That's what Paul is praying for. That's what God wants. This is a prayer in the will of God. That his people, you could say, as Paul describes maturity in the book of Ephesians, would be unified in the faith, that they would have growing, sound knowledge of God, that they would be filled with everything of Christ that they could be filled with, that they would be stable in doctrine, that they would be increasing in love for others and in in building one another up. The author of Hebrews describes maturity in terms of discerning between good and evil. This is what we need to be aiming for. This is what Paul is praying towards. I think if that's your goal, you could take this as an encouragement for you to pray for it. Pray for comfort. Pray for strength. Pray for stability in the faith and maturity in the faith. We're thinking about the verse... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This prayer really centers on the second half of that. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We can't do this all on our own. We can't stay stable. We can't grow mature without a shepherd. We need God's help, so we ought to pray. So do you know, Christian, that God is watching over you and that he does know what's best for you. Stability of the gospel is that your security ultimately rests in God. Paul's, again, addressing an error about the end times because these people are upset. They're uncertain. Maybe even about what they believe. Paul writes truth about the gospel, that Christ is coming again to judge all who won't believe. And they can have confidence because they have believed. God has chosen them. But they really need to set their confidence there in God himself. This is their ultimate security. God is kindly disposed to you, towards you. Father and son together, God planned it. Christ executed it perfectly, finally, fully. They will not fail in everything they set out to do. God is gracious towards you. He helps you. He causes you to stand. That's what the hymn writer says. Fear not. I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When you face something that strikes fear in your heart, especially when it's some attack on the truth that really has rattled you. Remember that the one to whom you pray when you're looking around for help is this one. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father, who has loved us, who has loved you and given you eternal comfort and good hope by grace. May he comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And may the Lord do that for us, whatever he has us facing. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we do ask for the comfort of the scriptures, the comfort of your love. And we ask for strength to do your will, to grow in Christ-likeness. This is our desire. Lord, if it's not, I pray that you'd help us to take stock of where we stand with you. Help us to desire likeness to Jesus Christ and maturity in the faith and to pursue it with all our might. Lord, we are in various circumstances and challenges of life, stages of life. But whatever that looks like, I pray that we would stake our hope on you, the one who loved us, showed us so much grace. We love you. We thank you for uh, the, the comfort of your word to our hearts. We pray it in Christ. Amen.